Hey guys, I uh, want to welcome you to our podcast. I'm Dwayne. I'm Jennifer. And uh, we do Roots. And uh, our conversations, we want to talk about serious things. Sure. And we want to talk about things that have weight and things that have impact, things that develop us in a root system, but also get clarity. And we're pretty jazzed. We got ourselves a guest today. Yes, we do. A good <laughs> guest. Amen. Reward. Give me your last name because I'm going to mess it up. Reward. Sabina. Amanda, there we go. There we go. Close <laughs> no, not Samanda. close enough. You say it. <laughs> Samanda, yes. Oh, Samanda. I wasn't even close. You're no. just nice. And uh, so Reward just stepped into a new role in Upper Room Dallas with, uh, in regards to kingdom and culture mm-hmm. as the pastor there. Um, and so I'm super jazzed to have you. Well, thank you. And likewise, so honored that you guys would, would have me on this incredible platform. I'm excited. No, and so we got just before we kind of get into our real topic, um, we got to talk about him and I have a, a unusual connection. So uh, it's the hair. <laughs> <laughs> you can tell, right? <laughs> no, I That's only it. I only dream of that hair, bro. I only dream of that hair. <laughs> no, uh, uh, where were you born? Tell me where you're born. Tell the so country. I'm in Bulawayo, in Zimbabwe. Bilaway and Zababi. And you, I'm sorry, when were you born? What? I'm sorry? When were you born? Oh, uh, 1983. Okay, he was born in 1983. And yeah. so when I was a little kid, when I was from six to eight years old, I moved to the city that it, I moved to his city, but I was younger. So I, he wasn't quite born yet. I you was there. Him into being, didn't I you prayed him in. I was like, I think 75 to 77, somewhere in there. And uh, it's, it's crazy. So Bulaway was just just north of South Africa. Yeah. And, you mean Zimbabwe. Uh, Zim, excuse me, Zimbabwe is just north of South Africa. It, it's, uh, yeah, tell us a little bit about, you, about your, where you're from, your journey, et cetera, just so we can get to know you a little bit. That is wild. But yeah, no, um, it's, it's, it's pretty crazy. It, it's, the world is the tiniest village ever, right? Just how Absolutely. Full circle. So just meeting Dwayne and just like, first even just as I was kind of following, I was like, what? The Zimbabwean, see, that's the thing with um, Southern African hospitality. It's like, if huh? you just walk through, right, we will claim you. So, but he <laughs> lived there. So he's, I always say he's got some Africanism in, in, in him. But yeah, originally born, raised, and bred in Zimbabwe. Been here about 15 years in the U.S., and so came here just to pursue media is what I wanted to pursue initially. Ah, okay. But yeah, and I was just like, it was one of those, I was like, man, whoever controls the medium controls the message. And the yes. message within African context is very powerful. Media is very powerful in that. It's powerful in general, but in the African context, it was very powerful. And so I was just like, I remember going, um, they opened the airwaves in Zimbabwe, Dwayne, I don't know if I ever told you the story. And no. uh, they showed, um, MTV, right, became a local canon within the Zimbabwean context for about a week. After a week, the government shut it down. They're like, this is horrible. But it's <laughs> changed, right, and, and, and transformed just the way people walked and talked and just yeah. shaped the cultural ethos at my high school in such a way I was like, this media is the most powerful thing there is. So if I go to the wow. U.S., learn as much as I can about media. When I come back, I can control the message because I came from a Christian yeah. home. And it was, so came to Christ for the Nations in Dallas. And it was while I was there that I felt like the Lord shifted my major. And okay. now I was like, wait a second, right? When you're a student and you don't have a car, people invite you to their churches and right, you go yeah. there and then you go to lunch after. And I noticed that the one thing that was consistent across just denomination and church and ecclesiastical expressions was the fact that the Western expression or the American expression of the local church was powerful, right? The African church, the indictment is a lot of zeal without knowledge, like run away, just go after it. But here there was so much societal impact and the churches had so much roots that it could be a church of about 60 or 70 people but, and it's an Orthodox church, but they have roots in the community. They've started hospitals, they've started schools. And Dwayne, you know this, right? In, in Africa, yeah. you could have a thousand people. And even Brazil is kind of similar. A thousand people meeting on, in the same building or under the same tree for about 10 to 15 years. But during the week, there's no social indication 
within the community that those people are meeting there. Yeah. So my whole thing was like, how can I, Lord shifted my major, I became a student of the local church. How can okay. I know the system structures, best practices, then take that, right? Merge it with the disciplines and the zeal of the third world expression of the church. And then on. build those hybrid, unified monuments and structures unto God called thriving and healthy churches. And that's where the shift came. And since then, whenever God is doing something, right, I submit myself to that ministry. I submit myself to that church. I learn from them. And uh, that's essentially where my journey has me right now. So it's been fun. Wow, okay. that's cool. I didn't know that part of your journey. That's, that's actually awesome. pretty cool. Yeah, I love that, man. That's, that's, that's sensational. I mean, it's amazing. And, and so currently, you are having a voice in kind of the racial conversation. Yeah. And I love the way the Lord is highlighting you. Yeah. And one of the things I really appreciate about you is that as a white person, I feel like you're leaning in to try to hear what I, I mean to say. Yeah. Even if I don't say it right. Yeah. And which is often. Which, which is often <laughs> in multiple areas. And um, yeah. I appreciate the, the graciousness uh, in which you're engaging in the conversation. Mm. And I think it's helpful. For me, it even feels safe to yeah. have a racial conversation with you. Absolutely. Because I feel the freedom that if I say it wrong, I want you to correct me for real yeah. and help me. But I, I, I perceive in you a desire to hear my heart. Wow. And I desire to hear your heart. Wow. And I think that element seems to be missing in a lot of the conversation Man, that's, that's happening. And that social media is toxic right now. Yeah, yeah. And it's, ah, and people are jumping on each other. Yeah. And there, yeah. there's a lot of division currently. Yes. And I mean, part of it is good. I think God is squeezing us and highlighting yeah. some of those things that have been below the surface. He's going, let's clean this up. Let's get mm -hmm. racism out of the church, and, and I'm, I'm all for it. Um, but there, the level of safety and conversation um, is a little bit rare. And yeah. so you've been creating places for people to have safe conversations. So how do you do that? Wow. No, no. Thank you so much for that. And I think, I think you have nailed right the, the, the problem, like right, right on the, the crux of the issue is that I feel like, um, and, and, uh, and, and, and you guys understand, that's why I love having this conversation with y'all because you have the blessing of context, right? You've stepped outside yeah. the, the Western, right? The, the, right? the Western framework. And the West in itself is just a very cold and distant culture, just yeah. wherever you are in comparison, right? In comparison yeah. to like a lot of third world contexts, like- Absolutely. The, the African or the Zulu or the Ndebele or, yeah. China, or even the Brazilian culture, which has a lot of its roots from Africa. And so when, when, when you understand that, it gives you the gift of context. And I feel like what God is doing right now is highlighting voices that have the gift of context, right? Because he is essentially growing his church and his reach and he's breaking down all the walls that kept us localized. And because of that, it's the people without necessarily skin in the game. They share in the baggage, but don't necessarily have a lot of skin in the game that he's yep. highlighting in, in, in ways which are pretty, pretty interesting. I think, I think just the West, the, the, the main problem is that the West does not necessarily, from a sociological uh, standpoint, has not mastered the art of civil conversation, right? Wow. I feel like that is essentially where it is. And that comes from relationship. If I'm in relationship with you, like what you said to me uh, earlier, Jenny was like, hey, if I know your heart and you know my heart and I understand, we understand each other's context and our, then we can have the hard conversation, right? And, and not react to what is being said, but have conversations in tandem with what is being meant. The truth is when we speak different languages, right, we will have problems with what I, what I call cultural cadence. Yeah. Latin whites within the American context have never really, up until now, up until like just um, 
finance and technology up and has opened the path up until now they've never had a lot of interplay between the two cultures right. and it's just happening now and whenever you start dancing with a new partner or you start engaging with a new culture you need a time of awkwardness as you establish your cultural cadence Right. And after that, so I feel like that is where the West is in a lot of ways. We're not having civil conversation because we haven't established our cultural cadence. And what's mm -hmm. making it even harder is that we are coming into a hypersensitive, right, cultural ethos, which is millennials and Gen Z and everything. People are just sensitive and very reactive and reactionary. And so yeah. before we even tackle the racial conversation, I feel like the one thing that is needful right is for us to establish how to have civil conversations how to disagree civilly when i first uh -huh. came to the us every other year or couple of months there is a shift in the in the news cycle right yeah. and i noticed that from politics to sexuality to abortion every time there was a new news cycle i would see the same people jumping on each other and it's almost like, wait a second, the one thing that is constant is that we do not know how to disagree without being disagreeable. And yeah. Uh, yeah. And, and, that's and, a good perspective. I, I haven't, haven't boiled it down to that point, and that's really good. And I think that in, in a conversation where there's lack of understanding, yeah. we have to have civil conversations. Precisely. And that's, I think it's kind of, it has to be a part. And so even for you guys who are listening today, I want you to, to lean in. Probably you might not even agree, but I want you to lean in and just, just picture yourself sitting a part of our conversation here because that is a key point yeah. in, in where I think I even want to go with our conversation today. But um, we have a, an incredibly um, divided country right now. And, yeah. and, and so that's, that's part of the, what we're speaking about, speaking into. But one question that I, I would like you to help bring a little bit of your perspective on is, is the issue of is race, racial tension, is it real in America today? And so when you look at perhaps some of the, I mean, some of the white community in America today, and yeah. they look at black and then people of color, they they would say themselves i love everybody i'm not a racist i don't yeah. know what you're talking about i i love everyone yeah. and but and so i don't understand i think that this is politicized in something besides racism mm -hmm. so can you speak into that a little bit just give us some of your thoughts on that no no definitely um but i think i think i think before we even engage on that level with most people right it's can two walk together unless they agree I've noticed that because we've both been speaking different languages, I'm talking about black and white, right? Different languages economically, different languages socially, different languages as far as value systems. So when we yep. come together and attempt to have a conversation, I've noticed that most people assume that their baseline for a specific thing is exactly what the other person is thinking, right? And so right. because of that, for example, if I say privilege and a white person says privilege, we assume we mean the same thing, but they're completely different frameworks, right? And yes. completely different. So for example, a white person, right? When I say, when I as a black person say privilege, I'm talking about the negative connotation. I'm talking about the fact that you just exist in a space and a system that was created for you to win, right? Right. So I, when I say that, I understand the negative connotation of that. Right. And how, but if you say it as a white person, privilege is just a descriptor, right? Uh -huh. Good, bad, or other. It's just a descriptor. So, for example, and there is at a fundamental level, there's nothing wrong with privilege, white, black, or otherwise, right? See, you and Jennifer work as hard as you can so that your children don't have to go through the same thing that you went through. So you work so that you can give them an edge, a privileged edge over yes. whatever they may be overcoming. I start a company, right, as a black man, so that my kids don't necessarily have to come in and have to face like, right, all sorts of like systemic encumbrances to do that. So I leverage my life to give my children privilege. 
Right. Yeah. So can, and it's actually a biblical, it's a biblical concept. It's a kingdom we, concept. Precisely. It's a kingdom Pri concept. Yes, privilege yeah. is a kingdom concept. So can you imagine me coming to your house, right? And talking to, to your kids and going, hey, wait a second. I'm entitled to everything in your, in your fridge. You guys are very privileged. They're like, yeah, it's my birthright. It's my heritage. Yes. My parents yeah. paid for this privilege. But so we may be talking about privilege, but the moment I try to use the word privilege to try to get you to give up something, you will defend it. But if, can you imagine if we at the table started with a conversation and saying, hey, Dwayne and Jennifer, my white friends, when I say the word privilege, what do you fundamentally understand? You guys are like, well, privilege is something that we've worked for and everything. And I'm like, yeah, privilege. All of a sudden it's like, oh, wait a second. Well, when I say privilege is this, and then we find that same space of right, coherence and, and, and cadence, and then once we establish what privilege is, so I feel like what's happened is black people have a different sociological definition than white people on every topic there is because we're two completely different people. So when we come together, it could be the same word, but it means the completely different things to different people. And that's why there's always this and there's always this. And uh, an um, point. yeah, a white person could be like, I don't see anything wrong with privilege. And then a black person is horrified going, what? Are you kidding right. me? But we never took the time to say, when what I say privilege, what do you yeah. hear? So what do you, so, so what do you mean then when you say white privilege? Give us a, a context for that word and how it's being used within the white community and the black community today. Like, talk to us as a black, in the, uh, as a black man who goes, no, there's been white privilege and it's systemic. It's kind of in all spheres. Just help us understand what, what the black community means when they say that word. Precisely. And, and, and that goes to the core of our sociopolitical um, expression, right, as the American nation. So, for example, we are a capitalist nation, right? So yes. that means our, our capitalistic framework um, informs our social circles and our, and, and, and our social status and our social organization and understanding. So... Yeah. For example, when slavery finished, which slavery in itself was an economic right, undertaking, they, right. every civilization has been built on the back of a disposable workforce, right? Yes. So even though the effects are highly personal and painful, the intent was not. It was economic. It was gain. And so from there, right, so there's all these things and then... Um, uh, emancipation uh, proclamation then afterwards it's like okay now black people you can start building this but because fundamentally it was economic so there were laws passed right I'm talking about the black laws and even up until after this Jim Crow laws that maintained white privilege systemically over black people for example so white, white superiority so the idea that that you know whites always had the upper hand yes because and i think, think, I, think yeah think about it this way the, the the child or the expression of superiority is privilege right if well, i'm sure. superior yeah. to you at work then i have yeah. specific privileges that you are not privy to yes right so if you it's, start so, a company right now yeah go ahead sorry well, just so our, I just want people to track our laws did change mm -hmm. um, in, in our in the law, yeah. but right the white community never really gave up their place of of superiority. Uh, neither could they. So, for example, let me keep, let, let me frame this. You and Jen start this podcast right called Roots, and it grows and it's powerful. Is oh my gosh, right? And it, <laughs> The roots go deep. And then by God's grace, it grows into the next CNN or Fox or whatever, the next syndication, right? Yep. At that point, your children, right, now have a, 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 a financially competitive edge, whether they asked yep. for it or not. By virtue oh, of you sure. starting something and that yep. thing bearing fruit generationally, if my child, if I did not start something and leave any, an inheritance for my children, so your children start fund, uh, they start economically, 
with more privilege, right? Yep. They start um, socially with more privilege. When I talk about socially, I'm talking about access. We yeah. know that, right? Most jobs are, most of the movement at a higher level, it's unlisted. It happens within the realm of relationship and access, right? It happens yep. with direct like, oh, so for example, a CEO is, is, is playing golf with a CFO, completely different companies like, hey, we're looking right. to hire this. This guy's like, oh, right. you should check out this guy reward. So right there, I literally just got a job that I wasn't applying for, that I didn't know existed, but simply because privilege and relationships speak on those higher levels. So what right. happened is after slavery, what I was going to say is when black people should have begun building at a fundamental yep. level, building wealth, laws were passed which shafted them, but uh, benefited white people who then, because they're capitalistic and because American people are very enterprising, began to build, right, institutions and wealth and all these things to where now, 200 years later, you have families, American families like the Fords and the Rockefellers and everything who have like multi-generational wealth, right? Right. Simply because, and they are children like the Waltons, Walmart, the Walton children are, were born into influence and all this so when i talk about systemic i'm talking about the fact that when white people were building black people were not building yeah so generational passing things on precisely and you understand that from a kingdom perspective and so when black people are saying leverage your white privilege to create room for us it's talking about how you and jen are going to be in a room with a ceo and you can be like, there's this guy who, because maybe he's black, or whatever, would have never made it to the through the fourth or the fifth rounds. But you guys then leverage your access and your influence and your financial blessing or your whiteness at a basic yeah. level yeah. to then yeah. create rooms and spaces for me to then exist in those places. I don't know if that makes sense. Yeah, it does it, make sense. It, it, it totally makes yeah. sense. It does yeah. make sense. Um, and and this is a sad and maybe sick example. But um, my mom uh, was married to a black man. So my, my wow. stepdad is black. Wow. And they were truck drivers. Okay. Yeah. So um, long haul truck drivers. They would stop at a truck stop and go into a restaurant and wouldn't be seated. Like no one would seat them. Yeah. So my, my mom figured out if she went in alone and said table for two, my yeah. husband's coming, they would seat her and they would be served in a truck stop. In, in a truck stop. Wow. But without her doing that, they would not be served. That, and even, isn't that crazy? That I mean, is that's crazy. awful. I mean, that's that racism. Is, that's everything. Yeah, but that. she used her whiteness to get them a table so they could eat. Just and, simply that. And that, Dwayne, I think it speaks to, man, thank you so much for that, Jane. Because it, what you just said answers um, Dwayne's question. Most people don't understand to you guys as two white people, right? And, and very trendy and hip, like, you know, like influential looking white people. It's as simple as if I want a table, I get a table. That's right. entitlement, right? Yes. I, if I walk into a truck, truck stop, for God's sake, I am entitled to a table. I don't even yeah. yes. think about it. Yeah. Right? Yes. But yeah. for a black person, then all those other things of like, how can I leverage the system to be able at a fundamental level to get access to a diminished expression of the service that white people receive without even thinking about it. Right. And it's right. crazy now because if you think about it, the um, Jim Crow and all these things, it's literally 19, mid to late 1960s is where some states were still desegregating, right? Yeah. They were so, still in the process of desegregating. Precisely. So That's like crazy. about what? So the people who grew up, right, in a society and right. households that glorified this expression that white people are superior to black people and they don't even meet are now the average age of the CEO in corporate America is between like 50 to 70 years old. Yeah. So the people shaping our policies were raised in homes and households and around wow. relationships and their value systems were shaped in a country that not only tolerated the separation, right? Right. And, and, and the consequent, almost like um, 
uh, alignment of races, but they grew up, the people that they love, their value systems were shaped within them. So yeah. either privilege is, is um, white, uh, white privilege is invisible to them because yeah. it's so deeply encoded in their value systems, or it's invisible to them because they've never existed outside of a context where they are the predominant and decision-making majority. So it's right. still very right. fresh. Very right, because as a white person, I'm insulated from it because Precisely. the culture is set up for me to mm. thrive. Yes. And so I ordered some furniture. It arrived. It was a little bit damaged. And I asked my son-in-law, who's black, if he would take the pictures so I could send it to the furniture company to show them the damage. Yeah. Now, if I took the pictures, great. I just take a picture, no big deal. But yeah. he, as a black man, was conscious not to show his hand in exactly. holding the furniture. Exactly. And I don't have to think about that. Precisely. Precisely. That, that's shocking. And this it is, is so powerful. And most of the white community in America has no idea that no. is how a black man would 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 look at it. No. And and, and that think, yeah, if you think about it, Dwayne, right? When we look at um epistemology or just like how knowledge happens, so there there are four basic um, and I think I'll go into three, right? The basic competencies. So for example, there is um uh, what you call like um, unconscious, right? Incompetence. I don't know that I don't know right. about what I don't know about. So for example, right. if I were to say, throw out an obscure concept, like just throw something out, just something, just say something, for example, that there's probably no way I could know about. I mean, quantum physics, <laughs> okay. but maybe you do. Uh, I don't it's know. It's reward, no. honey. He knows a lot. <laughs> but, but yeah, exactly. Let's go with that, right? Quantum thing, until you said that, right? I was unconsciously incompetent. I did not know that I did not know that I did not know about quantum physics. But right. the moment you said it, what happened at a core and cognitive level is I moved from a place of unconscious incompetence to conscious incompetence. Now yes. I know that I do not know about this, right? And then we go right. on, then the next level is when you educate me a little bit because you're a brainiac, then now I am conscious and then it kind of goes and then in the end it's unconscious competence to where i just know yes. i can regurgitate in my sleep i feel okay. like a lot of america within the racial context right white america exists in this space of unconscious incompetence i don't even know what i don't know because totally. i've never had the conversation that moved me from this space to this place and I think the, the example I gave, which I think is brilliant, uh, when I spoke um, at your campus this past Sunday was, um, someone said this, they're like, I don't know who invented water, but I'm pretty sure it's not fish, right? Fish are only um, aware of the fact that they, there is another universe or another um, element when they bite into a fish hook and they're pulled out of water and they're like, oh my gosh, I can't yeah. breathe out here. So I feel like because America was systemically and systematically created from a capitalist framework to benefit white people, then they just don't know what they don't know. So what yes. I always say, and this is the book that um, we just wrote, what I'm always saying to people is, have you set the table at a fundamental level? You can't do it over social media because there are stakes right. there. People feel like yeah. they're being judged for their response. But have right. you set a table to where you sat down and had a conversation with white people to where they could say ignorant and, and, and stupid things and you could give stupid responses without the edge on and without right the fact that mm -hmm. whatever I say is going to be recorded for all eternity because such right. is the nature of digital footprints. And, right. and at that point in conversation, right, in unrecorded off the record conversations, that's where I've noticed and I've seen the Lord work the most in that gray space, in that gray area, where at the end of every conversation, like what you guys, you, how you postured yourself in the racial conversation to where you go, I had no idea. I never right. thought about this. Yeah. And I also go, well, I've had to study your world. So there may be some things because I have to exist in it. So there may be some things that I know about white culture because I've been forced to study it. But at the same time, I walk away knowing things about you and you knowing things about me 
that we never knew before. And unless and until our people, especially Christians, because we're called to set tables, our strategy is always a table, right? Yeah. Until Christians start setting tables for people to come and have those heartfelt conversations, then we will always be alienating each other and the spirit of disunity will thrive in the racial conversation because race so, is just an expression of disunity. So my question is this, um, I love that approach. That's mm -hmm. simple, that's we can do that. But then I have in my head the other voice that said black people are tired of educating white people. Mm -hmm. and. How, or they're tired of the conversation. Yeah, they're, they're yeah. and I get that. Um, yeah. So how how do people start a conversation without making the the person of color feel used or trivialized or tired or why don't you just go figure it out yourself? Get on YouTube. Yeah. You, do you know? Do you hear my question? Yes, I hear a question, and I I completely. I think it's such a valid and important question because it, 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 it essentially underscores a lot of the frustration that I feel like what people are saying. They're like, I genuinely did not know, but uh -huh. now I feel like my, my, my questions, which are sincere, are just irritating you because they are an ex almost like an expression of my ignorance and no one ever wants right. to feel ignorant, right? Right. <laughs> so, so here's, yeah, here's what I will say as a black man to yeah. black people watching this, right? Yeah. Do not, my black brothers and sisters, do not get it twisted, right? Do not give in to offense. Do not feel like you are entitled to sulk and isolate and alienate the well-wishing white people who are genuinely asking. This is the first time in history that the most white people, that it's been a cultural and social movement that white people are asking these questions, which means this is not the time for us, right? To solve and talk about this is time. This is the time to lean in. The reality is, yes, we may be tired, but it also doesn't change the fact that we are in unprecedented territories where for yeah. the first time, white people are asking those questions. Can you imagine right. if, if you come to me and you ask me the first thing and I'm like, I am so tired and you're like, whoa, this is the first conversation. So to my black people, whatever the source is, find the source of encouragement within you and lean in at Amen. a fundamental level. You can't say you're educating white people if they haven't been listening. The fact that they're listening and asking the questions now means this is uncharted territory. So that entitlement and that anger and that hatred and that whatever that is, does not apply here. This is a brand new conversation. It's an old conversation for us, but it's a yeah. brand new dynamic with our white brothers and sisters. So we should be leaning in. We should be going, okay, hey, I will explain it to you. I will go as basic as we need to be because yeah. if your heart is open to receive, then I only have to have this conversation once and I have gained a lifelong ally. Yeah. So yeah. that I feel like that language of disenfranchisement and that language of anger and that language of entitlement is not building language and it has no space for us right here. We cannot afford to waste the ears and the goodwill, right? That our wow. white wow. friends are generating right now. I mean, can you stop asking questions? No, Let me ask I questions. Can't. He's so fascinating. <laughs> I'm just, I just appreciate that response reward for real, Thank because you. I understand that the pain of the black community is intense. It's real, man. And, and yeah. it's, it's coming up yeah. and expressing itself sometimes in anger. So, I mean, multiple emotions yeah. and, that's okay. I feel like we're we're all starting this conversation. So I have a grid even for someone being mad at me just for being white yeah. because it needs to come out. There's a yeah. there's a, a a cleansing so to speak. Precisely. Um, but but your graciousness is really um I mean, it's, I mean, and it's also very, very helpful to, yeah. to advance this conversation. And as we're talking here, I'm thinking of you know, um, we just recently been living in Brazil for six years, and that that country has the um, pretty much every skin color 
and there's yeah. a vibrant like they got Chinese, Japanese, Korean, Middle they, Eastern. They have a very black um, um, part of the part of the country. They're, um, Italian, everything. Yeah. And so, but but even within that context, there is the, the social classes yeah. yes. that have been really developed around basic skin color, actually. Nice. And it's nice. it's um in and that is a country where it's almost impossible to break classes. You you can't. It's yeah. I mean it's the very rare one that that pops up into the you know economic different when economic you were born class in poverty uh -huh. particularly. Mm -hmm. And so one question I would like to get your response on when from a biblical perspective when I have uh, privilege. When a, God has given me, or because of where I was born, I have um, superiority. How am I to walk in yeah. the context of others that yeah. are not in the same? Does that make sense? That makes perfect sense. That's a great question. And um, once again, right under this umbrella of grace, this is what I would I, I, I would say to that, Dwayne. And and you guys understand this because just like once again, the perspective that the Lord has given you, right. From a social perspective having gone to different cultures there is such a thing as creating a perverse incentive mm -hmm. and what i mean by this is like or, or rather destructive aid or destructive yeah. wealth right yeah. yeah there is such a thing if i out of guilt right give towards right. a cause or, or or coalesce for it may be cathartic to me but if I don't understand fundamentally why I'm doing that and where it's coming from, then it's just going to be another expression of my savior mentality. Yeah. And totally. That so I wow. gave you something. That's what Proverbs talks about, right? The, the yeah. fact that isn't like, it creates that disparity. Now that I gave you something, I feel like you are more, even more inferior, right? Because right. whenever I give, the, the, the whole dynamic yes. between giver and lender and all these things so here Man, if you if you if you um didn't just get what he just said go back and listen to that this is a huge point yeah. i no, think okay. it, it speaks to it's yeah. a massive so point keep going we won't interrupt anymore <laughs> no yeah but but what i'm saying and here's what i will say to you um Dwayne and jen and to all my white friends listening to this stop apologizing if you do not understand what you are apologizing for. Mm -hmm. See, okay. what I've seen in a lot of the social conversation that has happened, when you look at books like White Fragility and all these things, these are all books that propagate a sense of white guilt. Yes. And when white people are guilty, guilt can always be um, misappropriated, right? And leverage for people with mal intent to gain from it specifically. The thing is, outside the context of kingdom, guilt will always seek for self-flagellation. And that's what I've seen. Like, white fragility, people will read this book, and they will accept a false identity and say, oh, my gosh, I didn't know I was racist. You know what? I am so racist. How can I? And that is the wrong place for us to begin to engage, right, interracially, because it then creates a perverse incentive. You might feel for a second like you're whatever and you give me all this money and then tomorrow because it was not heartfelt, right? You did not uh -huh. understand why. Then tomorrow you despise me for that because right. it never happened. So the moment if black people are angry, right? And they're too angry to explain why they are angry to you. If they're so angry that they cannot have a civil conversation with you, the moment you apologize, that has just been an admission of guilt. Hmm. And it makes that person feel like they are entitled to anger without context. And yes, wow. there's historical reason for being angry. But the yeah. Bible calls us to a place and a space of unity and moving forward. So yeah. never, white people, never apologize, right, for what, for being white until that black person has had a civil conversation to where you understand them and you understand how they have been fundamentally yeah. aggrieved by the, the systemic disparity from a racial com context. At that point, then you say, do you know what reward? I, Dwayne, am sorry because now I understand that. Dash, dash, uh -huh. dash, dash, dash. Yep. 
Yeah. That is the, the essence of true repentance from a kingdom context and otherwise is an understanding of what I did to be sorry and why I am sorry. So right. never be backed into a corner to start apologizing if they will not take the time to have a respectful conversation with you on why they are mad. I don't know if that makes right. sense. Yeah, it no, does. It absolutely. makes perfect sense. You know, I, uh, I was at a pastor's gathering this week. Um, so it was probably an 800-seat room. And there was maybe 100 to 150 pastors in this room. And I was, you know, about three-quarters of the way back on an aisle seat. And, um, you know, if we had 100 people in the room, 98 of them were white. Mm. Um, our worship leader, Oren, who's a, who's a black man, or a, he's our music director, he was sitting beside me. And then I turned around, and I saw to my right at the very back of the room in a very humble posture was a, a black man. I'm assuming he was a leader because that's who was invited there. Yeah. And because, and I'm going to be honest with you, I don't know if two years ago, if I was in that, I would have maybe even paid attention to him. But uh, his posture, at, when I turned around, his posture hurt. It actually, I was, I was pained over it because he, at the back of the room, he, absolutely there was humility he just was on his knees hands raised worshiping but i just i just don't think that many within the white community understand a black man walking into a room with what 98 white leaders and how he feels what's his world and his perspective and and i i think that's where i want to see us really wake up within the white community Mm-hmm. And and go, we have an issue. And yeah. the idea for me, when I, as a leader, when you look to Jesus and you look to biblical leadership, um, it is really that place of, 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 of uh, servanthood. Mm-hmm. Leadership is who am I and who am I, who am I to lead? And in that context, I actually, how do I make them better? How do I yeah. make them stronger? How do I elevate as a leader? Sure, you know, right. and that's the meekness aspect of Jesus. He came as a servant, the most powerful, influential man, but his goal was to make others great. Perfect. And I feel like it's one perspective yeah. that we can carry as as those when we see people of color around us, yeah, we need to yeah. understand that our resource, our energy, our platform, how can we actually help them in the context of this, this pain? And, and, and so, so in my position, how can I make people of color and strengthen them and, and, yeah. and, and value and lift them up? Yeah. And that's one thing the Lord's been talking to me about. Just, yeah. you know, um, we, we had a conversation. I was on a small call. And I just want to just give you a little bit of context just to help you understand, yeah. I think, um, how some some of our even black leaders in the church feel. Yeah. Um, You're going to help him understand no, how black leaders feel? No, I'm talking about, <laughs> sorry, excuse me. I was actually referring to those listening. Listen up, Reward. We're going to teach you some stuff. <laughs> no, I just got to tell you this story. Oh, I just got to tell you this story because it actually, it actually hurt my heart. Yeah. I get invited into a call. And there was maybe 10 of us. There was uh, myself and another beautifully bald man. There was We were the two white guys. Then there was a Messianic Jewish leader. And then the rest of them were black leaders, yeah. body of Christ in Denver. Yeah. And two of them, one was, one man was a, he was an elder statesman in the body here. Um, he's a past local pastor, but he was an older black gentleman. And then there was a, a younger man who spoke a lot, um, very well educated as well. And um, he goes, look, I don't have time to waste. And he goes, I just want to tell you what happened to me last week. He goes, I was invited onto a Zoom call, and there was over 60 pastors on the call. And um, very few of us were white, but it was... uh, uh, black. Yeah, very few of us were black. And this one guy set up the call, and he brought in 23 pastors from his network, white guys, white pastors. We had the conversation, and the follow-up from the 60, three white pastors said, I want to continue to engage with you wow. out of the 60. Yeah. And around the subject of race. Around the subject of race. And this, I, 
the pain in this man's heart. Yeah. And he goes, I don't have time to mess around. And if you're not serious, I don't want to be serious wow. with you. Wow. I mean, it just, it, 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 it hurt me that within the body of Christ, yeah. we have pastors who feel this pain. Yeah. That's right. That's right. And, and it's not right. No, no, no. I mean, it, and, it's not right. No, it's fund, fundamentally. And as kingdom people, right, that is, we are called to the heart of that pain, right? Yes. And, you know, you, you know what I love the most about, uh, about, about you and Jennifer doing is the fact that when, when we look at Jesus, when we look at the book of Job, right, written, when we look at it ethnocentrically, we are a capitalist. And so we're two things. As America, we, we were a younger empire, so we're still building, so we're in building mode, yeah. and from a capitalist framework. So everything, the highest dynamic that we have with each other and with the resources around us is predominantly utilitarian, right? Uh -huh. We use people, it's like, all right, let me know what I need to do and everything. So we always approach people and others from a what perspective. What uh -huh. can I do? Even yes. in the racial conversation, if you've noticed, if you've noticed that, most white people are coming to black people and saying, I am so sorry, what can I do? How can I make it better? Mm -hmm. But the right. Bible was written from an ancient uh, context, right? And so it's a Middle Eastern context and it's very similar to, 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 to the African. We share like common, common yeah. sociological roots in a sense. So in the African and probably in the Brazilian as well, it is an insult to try to rectify an issue when someone is still grieving. Mm -hmm. Which wow. is why Job's friends, right, the most intellectually astute minds of his day yeah. came and for three days they sat in silence and solidarity with him, right, until he opened his mouth and invited them into an intellectual conversation, which was when they began to engage and write the most intellectual, I think, dialogue in the Bible exists, right? Job and his friends. Yeah. But it was after they had sat down in silence and grieved with him. And when he was, because wow. grief has stages, right? Yes. So when he yes. was past the silence and whatever grief, they could have been like, Job, get up, don't worry, it's gonna be okay, buddy. It's like, no, it says they sat in silence. Let's go to Jesus. What happens, right? Jesus, knowing full well, he's already declared that he is coming to raise Lazarus. Yeah. He comes and because it was a culturally acceptable and humane thing to do, he sits down and he weeps with yeah. the sisters, right? And then goes, up, goes on and raises Lazarus. In my American and capitalist and mm -hmm. utilitarian framework, out of comment, like everybody, stop crying. Jesus is here. Right. I'm here. To right. Absolutely. Right. Right. Why did he sit down and weep with them? Because culturally, ancient cultures understand that it would be more important for us to remember Jesus as the Jesus who weeps with those who weep, as yes. opposed to the Jesus who fixes our issues. So wow. it takes it. It, it takes a tweaking of our ethnocentric framework for us to understand that. That's why Paul can say this Paul who's right, who, 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 who's cast out demons and who has healings left, right and center and whose aura can heal people still mandates that the culturally acceptable thing to do is to weep with those who weep. So in, in the American context, I feel like we are not at a position to where black people are in the grieving stage and grief yeah. manifests itself yeah. for some people in anger or distractive. Let me tell you this. If you just found out that I lost someone very dear to me, Dwayne, and you come to my house and yeah. I'm throwing things against the wall and everything. If you're really my friend and you love me, you don't stand there and start to disparage how I'm expressing right. my grief. You understand that this person is grieving. Totally. That is not the time to take out your wallet. That is not the time for you to take to public media or social media and start to talk about responsible ways for me to grieve. No. Right. Black America is grieving. And white America needs to come alongside and in solidarity, right? Yeah. Hold us through our grief. And then yeah. after that, 
the conversation can be like, how can we help? That's the first thing. Then the second thing, you raised this and it's still burning in my heart. So I'll let you guys connect it because you were talking about what can I do, right, as a leader. The prime example of appropriating privilege was Jesus. Came from a highly exclusive gated community, right? Came totally. Who did not look like him, who did not deserve the privileges that he, came, he had. And he poured out his life on their behalf. Yes. Whether they rejected him, appreciated what he was, it did not matter. His assignment was to come and pour out his life. But check this out. And it ties back to my point of um, never have, without apology, right? I'm sorry, never apologize without an understanding of concept. The, the, the most, the humblest expression that this king, the humblest icon of servanthood that he did was washing what? The disciples' feet. Yeah. But understand the context. It says, and Jesus, what does it say? What is the precursor? Knowing who he was yes. and where he was going, girded himself. So the girding and the serving happened with him understanding that he didn't owe these people servitude and servanthood. He owed them nothing. He knew who he was. And at that point, he could serve them and not get twisted in the dynamic. Yeah. So unless, and if we genuinely want to use Jesus as our example of how to serve black America, white people have to do it from an understanding of their privilege of yeah. who, who they are. And there's no guilt and they understand where they're going. They yeah. understand their past, their present and their history. And only then, can your help and your engagement in the racial conversation be redemptive both to you as white people and to the black people you're serving? Until yeah. then, yeah. you're just pushing a social agenda. Someone is yeah. appropriating and misappropriating your anger and yeah. it, there, it will be no complete resolution because we do not come from a baseline of understanding who we are and where we're going. Yeah, that's excellent. Okay, we got a little bit of time here, and I've got two. Um, we don't have much more time, actually. So I got two bomb questions that that could be explosive, and I don't know because if we <laughs> open this can of worms, go. it's going to get it's going to get intense here. But um, help, help. Let me just ask this one question: that help me under help us. What you know? How would you standing in front of a, a mixed group of age, so generational issues, yeah. Yeah. and then so we got millennials, baby boomers, Gen Zs in the room, yeah. and um, and they're trying to figure out who do I vote for oh, today, honey. in November. That's what I know. This is a volatile yeah. question here. Yeah. So. What, I like how what, you just went there. Let's go. Dwayne. Yeah, and it's just—I mean, we don't have a ton more time here, but yeah. uh, how do? What are things that I need to be praying about and thinking about in the context of racism today? Yeah. Um, the context of what we've just talked about, because yeah. you've got the abortion babies. Literally, it's written into our laws that it's legal to kill a human being in the womb, yeah. and we've got oh my goodness, incredible injustice within our within the within the you know the racial conversation how yeah. do i just give us a couple of thoughts of looking at november how do i prayerfully enter into the dialogue that that's a great question the complication it's a huge question i understand but no 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 I, it's fine it's a very fair question in the context of what we're going through but we are kingdom people right right that is when jesus came onto the scene he came propagating not necessarily salvation, not a whatever. He came propagating kingdom. That was his message, right? Yes. It was kingdom. And kingdom is a socio-political, right, yes. conversation. So if we are kingdom, it means we have a king. And this king is sovereign, right? Yes. And it means this king's plans and purposes are our prime agenda. Now, it's hard for us to understand this because we belong to a democratic republic. A mm -hmm. republic means we democratically elect someone who makes the decisions for us, but we have a two-party system to keep them in check, right? right. But republic right. and kingdom or democracy and kingdom are two completely opposite political frameworks. Right. Yes. Kingdoms say 
The only say I have is once I lay down my life to the lordship of the sovereign and right. whatever their convictions and their decisions based on their grand scheme becomes my constitution. Right. Democracy say I take singular issues like abortion and all those things. I've tried to align them with what I believe are my convictions and all these things. And then based on that, extrapolate and make decisions. Mm -hmm. Right. Here's where it gets complicated, right? Here's where our, our democracy clashes with kingdom. Right. Our king has been known to use, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, right? Unorthodox means and people to propagate his purpose. Absolutely. Our king has been known to use a Cyrus yes. because that is the perfect person perfectly fitted with his ways, which are above our ways and his thoughts, which are above our thoughts. So if I try to democratically look at this, I could be like, Cyrus's values are not in alignment with the fact that the kingdom is supposed to be restored to Israel. Therefore, there is no way I can vote for Cyrus. And by so doing, I am then undermining the purpose and the plans and the will of this sovereign. Yeah. So now so here's, here's where this applies to us in the election. As a kingdom person, you're, you have a responsibility to your priesthood before your patriotism. Mm -hmm. You have a responsibility to your king before and his kingdom before your country. So every single person who is called, and this is unpopular, but this is my core conviction. Every single person who is called to be a kingdom person, go and lay down before your king and ask him who he will have you vote for. Regardless of whether in your eyes and in your finite understanding, that person aligns with your convictions or what you call king com kingdom convictions right. or not. It's unpopular, but what I've noticed is now more than ever, we need to lean into yes. the voice of our king and the fact that his purposes are sovereign and supreme, even if they don't align with this. And whoever you feel like he genuinely tells you to vote for in alignment with his plans and his purpose and his will, which is that he is under no obligation to explain to you, vote for that person. Right. Now, I, I can buy into that. Um, mm -hmm. It's very, it, it's just challenging because in the United States, we have deified politicians mm -hmm. to some extent. Mm -hmm. And we villainized one party and deified another. And it's just so jacked up. Mm -hmm. You know, there's no perfect political system. So your answer is helpful because right. it causes us to actually have to lean in and hear the Lord. Yeah. And until he returns and sets up his kingdom, there's yeah. no perfect kingdom. Precisely. That is exactly right. Because every party has redemptive aspects of yeah. their cause. Absolutely. Right? One party yes. believes in and champions social justice. The other yes. party believes in and champions morality, right? Yeah. And yeah. so the, everyone can stand along their party lines and feel like they're doing the work of God. Just right. like it has, the Bible has been the justification for every atrocity that man has ever committed, right? Right. But when you understand this king, that's why I love the rich legacy that y'all carry, right? Coming from IOP, the legacy of laying at his feet and hearing him for yourself. Before, yeah. that's what Jesus, right? Hebrews. Before the law and the prophets, he spoke to us at sundry times through all these things. In these last days, he has spoken to us through his son. And when we go through that veil, we find that we have access to hear yes. for ourselves what yeah, the absolutely. heart desires and the affections of this king is. And then align and then literally spill our voter privilege at his feet as an offering and say, I might like this candidate or I might belong to this party, but I'm laying it at your feet and saying your kingdom is above all. What would you have me do my liege? And if the entire church was postured that way, oh my gosh. Yeah, no, that's good. That's really good. I appreciate that. No, man, I thank you so much for uh, 
we uh, we got to wrap it up here just because of time. But um, I'm quite confident we'll probably have you come back. I just I really enjoy talking. With, <laughs> I really enjoy talking with you, and uh, and I think you've got a a really um, needed perspective yes. specifically on this topic. But even then, as we go into the elections, it's gonna be it's gonna be crazy, crazy. Gonna be a little bit on the cray cray side. So, uh, hey, man, thanks so much for jumping in with us, man. I look forward to bringing you out here again sometime. We'll make we'll have to make sure it happens. Absolutely. Likewise. So honored by you guys. Love you guys. God bless you. And thank you for the opportunity. Uh, we love you, too. For man. sure, man. Thanks so much, guys. And uh, stick around for the next podcast next week. We'll talk to you later.